Welcome to Bioethics On Air, the program that brings you thoughtful, in-depth commentary on ethics at the crossroads of science, medicine, and daily life. We are a broadcast of the National Catholic Bioethics Center in Philadelphia. The principle of double effect, which has great relevance for the field of healthcare ethics, is an often misunderstood moral principle. Today's guest, Dr. John D. Camillo, a staff ethicist at the NCBC, sheds light on this important principle. In this podcast, Dr. D. Camillo offers an overview of the principle of double effect, explains its four criteria, and demonstrates how it can be applied to address complicated ethical challenges in the healthcare setting. Well, hello, John. Welcome to our podcast today. Hi, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. I was wondering if you could start off today by giving us a little bit of a background uh, on yourself. Tell us a little bit about your education and your work here at the National Catholic Bioethics Center. Sure. Uh, so basically, I, as an undergrad, I studied the um, biological basis of behavior at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, uh, double majored with Italian studies. And then after that, I went to Rome for my graduate work. Uh, to get a degree in bioethics, and, and specifically, um, there was a faculty there that uh, had just started up uh, in the early 2000s um, that had a degree in bioethics, so I got a licentiate degree there, <clears throat> and then uh, also finished my uh, doctoral dissertation um, last year in bioethics uh, through the same institution, the Pontifical Athenaeum Regina Apostolorum. Uh, and as I had finished the licentiate degree, I moved back to the United States at that time as I was working on the doctorate, and I uh, found the National Catholic Bioethics Center uh, certification program, enrolled in that program uh, to get a sense of the, the world of Catholic bioethics here in the U.S. Uh, with a little bit more clarity. Um, that uh, helped me to focus in my studies and bring them to bear on the realities here in the United States. Um, and uh, and then I did some work for the National Catholic Bioethics Center as a translator. Uh, ultimately, was hired as a full-time ethicist here, uh, where I've been working since uh, 2011 um, <clears throat> as a staff ethicist. And most of what I do involves uh, consultation work or education um, and primarily um, analyzing uh, collaborative arrangements between uh, Catholic and non-Catholic healthcare institutions, uh, as I had also done my uh, doctoral dissertation on the question of uh, collaborative arrangements um, and the principles governing uh, cooperation um, as they apply to Catholic healthcare uh, in our country. So that's where I am. That's a great background. So today we're going to be talking about a moral principle that has great relevance for the field of healthcare and healthcare ethics, but also a principle that is very widely misunderstood, and that is the principle of double effect. And John, if you would, could you give us an overview of the principle of double effect? Sure. Uh, so the principle of double effect has a long uh, tradition uh, within the uh, Catholic uh, moral tradition. It actually um, <clears throat> goes back to people credit uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, with first sort of introducing it with his discussion of uh, self-defense. Um, and it's gone through extensive discussion has been confirmed even in terms of uh, um, even in terms of uh, non-Catholic uh, philosophy and so on and so forth through the centuries since then. Um, it has slight variations on how it's formulated, but 
the basic gist is it's generally described in terms of uh, four basic criteria. Uh, the idea is there's an action, uh, an individual um, performs an act, and it has at least two, potentially more than two, um, effects. Uh, the idea being at least one of those is a good effect, which the agent is uh, directly intending, and then uh, one or more uh, bad effects or side effects um, of the action, which the person is not directly intending um, and which might be legitimately tolerated um, in the circumstances. So the four criteria for figuring out whether it applies in the circumstance um, include, first, that the act itself has to be good. Uh, in other words, it cannot be an intrinsically immoral action, uh, such as a direct abortion or euthanasia or something along these lines. The, the next criterion is that it has to, um, the good effect that is directly intended uh, is, it should be the only effect that is intended. Um, and the third criterion is that the uh, bad effect is merely foreseen and not the means of accomplishing the good effect. So that good effect shouldn't come about as a result of the bad effect. Uh, and then uh, finally, the fourth criterion, the proportionate reason uh, criterion. In other words, there must be uh, some adequate or proportionate reason to go ahead with the action and to permit and or tolerate that bad effect, which the agent does foresee. Um, so the proportionate reason sometimes is uh, is understood in terms of including notions such as uh, whether it's urgent that action be taken, as well as whether there are any other reasonable alternative courses of action that might be taken. So that proportionate reason criterion becomes very important um, once you've you've gone through the first three um, as to determining whether or not the the principle applies in the circumstance. Okay. So you've explained what the principle is. Now, for our audience, can we apply it in a practical healthcare ethics question? Uh, sure. I mean, I would start off actually with a, a kind of simple example I like to give before we get to the more complicated ones. Okay. Um, I mean, I think most people can can generally identify with something as simple as, hey, you know, I need to take some medication. Uh, and medications tend to have side effects, uh, and those side effects can be more or less significant. So this is kind of the simplest way to think about it. Um, if you, for example, need to take a, an antihistamine, uh, it can have side effects like causing drowsiness. Uh, so if you're going to take the antihistamine, obviously you have a directly intended good effect uh, of resolving some kind of allergic reaction or whatever that might be, um, and you're not directly intending to cause drowsiness, uh, but you foresee that that may be a consequence, and if you've taken them before, you probably know to what extent it's going to affect you um, in terms of that particular kind of side effect. And so you're basically asking you know, the question, well, obviously it's not an act that's immoral in itself to take an antihistamine. Um, you're directly intending that good effect of um, of addressing uh, whatever kind of uh, aller allergic type reaction you might be having, um, and you are not achieving that effect through the drowsiness, obviously. Uh, and then, of course, you probably have a proportionate reason for going ahead with that. You've assessed whether it's worth taking in the circumstances because the good that you're going to get out of that uh, essentially outweighs the foreseen harmful side effect uh, that you know is going to come with it. 
So that's kind of a simple example. Um, and then you could, you know, up it to a more uh, complicated or intense case where you might talk about something like uh, chemotherapy. Uh, well, let's again, do it that. Becomes very, yeah. Okay. So it becomes very apparent, you know, if you, if you are going to talk about chemotherapy, um, you have a much more intense kind of pharmacological intervention where you are giving a really lethal kind of medication that's going to destroy um, unhealthy cells, but also some healthy cells. Uh, so when you prescribe that particular chemotherapy regimen and when the patient agrees to it, obviously they're not directly intending to destroy all of their healthy cells. Um, they are directly intending to destroy the cancer cells, uh, which is the purpose and the direct intent in providing and taking this medication. Um, and so that is what's directly achieved. The destruction of healthy cells does not occur through the destruction of cancer cells, but rather the, two, the effects occur contemporaneously. Um, and so you don't have your good effect coming from the bad effect. Uh, and then finally, your proportionate reason comes into play. And, uh, you know, your answer is going to be based on, of course, how effective the doctors think this treatment is going to be for you. But if you go ahead with it, it's probably because you've assessed that um, you're going to achieve that good of destroying the cancer cells and recovering health in that sense. Um, and you are merely going to tolerate the harms to healthy bodily cells and tissues that will result uh, from that. John, where does the principle of double effect, quote unquote, fail? Or in other words, can you give us an example where the principle informs us what we shouldn't do? Uh, sure, absolutely. One of the common uh, situations that we encounter, questions that we encounter in consultation work, um, actually deals with the, the questions about uh, sterilization, surgical sterilization, particularly um, talking about uh, getting the tubes tied, for example, when there's a situation of potential for a future high-risk pregnancy. So people will ask, um, you know, my doctor has recommended, um, I'm a woman who's already had, uh, you know, three or four pregnancies, and maybe this is um, a repeat cesarean sections, and now if I become pregnant again, the doctor's telling me that I'm at a high risk of um, serious harm to my health and perhaps even of death. Uh, and so the recommendation I'm being given by the doctors is to have my tubes tied. And can I do that? Um, and the thought is often that, well, sure, this could be done. It's a, because it's a therapeutic intervention to try to obviously protect and safeguard the health and life of the woman. Um, but this is a situation where actually we find that double effect does not apply. The criteria are not satisfied because uh, what we're doing is uh, directly intending the surgical um, mutilation of healthy reproductive organs. Um, in this case, the, the uterus, uh, the woman, when she is not pregnant, there's no pathology of the uterus that's being directly addressed or removed. She's, she's fine. The danger only arises if she becomes pregnant. Um, and so what's, what's happening here, we would say, is um, a direct sterilization directly intending to render her infertile uh, by removing, uh, let's say, 
either by removing the uterus or, or tying the tubes in this case, we were talking about tubal ligation. Um, so tying the tubes would um, prevent her from becoming pregnant, and that's directly intended. So that is, um, in effect, an intrinsic moral evil. So we don't satisfy the first condition of double effect, which is that the act has to be good uh, in itself. Um, and so we've already failed there. Now, if someone were trying to apply it and realized that um, or didn't quite understand that fact about the intrinsic moral evil at, at hand here, they might continue and say, oh, well, maybe it's not an intrinsic moral evil, but if you move through the other criteria, uh, the second one you're talking about intending only the good, well, you would fail that one as well. But most evidently, the third criterion, you're talking about your two effects. One effect is uh, sterility that results when you tie the tubes, and the other is um, the safeguarding of health. Obviously, the, the final goal is to safeguard health, um, but in this situation, the safeguarding of health only comes about through the bad effect, so to speak, which is the sterilization, the um, sterility that is caused. So this would be a case where it's very clear that you're not able to satisfy the criteria of double effect any way that you look at it. Um, and so we would say that it remains an immoral action to undergo a tubal ligation um, in order to prevent uh, future high-risk pregnancies. Can you contrast that with a hysterectomy that a woman would have for a therapeutic purpose? Sure, absolutely. Again, if, it, if it's not talking about, if the issue is not preventing a future high-risk pregnancy, but rather there is some um, pathology of the uterus, um, whether there's something like uh, fibroids or a cancer or something of this sort that's actually posing um, a problem when the woman is not pregnant, um, then one could certainly directly intervene to, let's say, remove the uterus if it's serious enough um, that the, the risk being posed by this pathology is serious enough that we could actually remove the uterus directly. And what we're doing here is removing the, patho the pathology that is at work. So it is directly therapeutic in this sense. Um, and we are not intending, and here's where the double effect comes in, we're not intending the resulting sterility. The, the sterility that will happen by removing the uterus um, is an unintended but foreseen consequence of the fact that we're directly removing pathological tissue, let's say if it's cancerous uterus um, in this situation. So there we would be able to say, well, is it good in itself to remove a cancerous uterus? Yes. Um, is the good effect being intended only? Um, yes. Um, is the good effect being achieved through the bad effect? No. Uh, because the bad effect of sterility is a consequence that follows from removing the uterus. It's not the means by which we're accomplishing the therapeutic end. Uh, and do we have a proportionate or sufficient reason? Uh, yes. Again, we're assuming that there's a, a serious enough risk um, of, the, of the pathology at work. Okay. Great example. Um, I was wondering if we could kind of maybe move that and, and talk about another example that has come up in, well, it, it, it's come up in my, my own teaching and, and um, real situations with healthcare professionals. And it has to do with providing pain medication at the end of life. And the, the issue sure. um, that 
has that has arisen is there are questions of you know someone at end of life someone is in great pain and they are receiving a you know a dose of a very strong painkiller and the question is can you increase the pain medication to try to alleviate the patient's pain knowing that possibly when you increase the pain medication you may hasten the patient's death and this is an issue that I know many nurses have have dealt with and they've actually struggled with. And um, does the principle of how do, or how does the principle of double effect apply to a situation like that? Sure, yeah, it's it's a great scenario. It's one that we um, often encounter in our consultation work as well, and certainly one that um, is is very helpful to clarify to so many people who are working in our healthcare systems and, and in healthcare generally. Um, pain management, yes. Uh, if you are talking about increasing the amount of, let's say, an opioid uh, painkiller of some sort, um, which would uh, potentially be foreseen to um, hasten death in some way. So, for example, people talk about morphine, um, and they'll say, well, you know, some people would uh, see or, or, or experience that the increasing dosage, dosages of morphine could potentially suppress respiration um, in some patients and result in a hastening of death because of the suppressed respiration and so forth. Um, Let's say that if this is the case, in other words, uh, in the circumstance, the the person, the nurse, the doctor, whoever it is, foresees that increasing the dose of the morphine um, is going to address the pain, but at the same time, it might in fact hasten the person's death, um, this could be a case where double effect does apply. In other words, um, if you are raising the level of of painkiller to the point that's necessary to treat the pain, that is something that in itself is a good. Um, and what you would be doing is directly intending the good effect of pain relief, which cannot be met with a lower dose. And then the bad effect, let's say that um, suppression of respiration and consequent perhaps hastening of death, um, that doesn't come about uh, through the relief of pain. Uh, that comes about, again, as a side effect of the act of, of increasing the dose of the opioid. Um, so it's not coming about through the good effect. I'm sorry, the, the good effect is not coming about through the bad effect. Um, the, and then finally, your proportionate reason. So the question is, uh, do you have a sufficient reason here to go ahead and increase that dose in the circumstances and to tolerate the potential side effect here or the foreseen side effect here of suppressed respiration and potential hastening of death. Um, and that would re require you to think about, well, uh, first of all, what kind of dose are we giving? Is it a proportionate dose? Is it the dose that's needed to treat the pain? Or are we loading, superloading with a very, very high dose um, unnecessarily? Obviously, if you are just overloading in terms of the dosage, that would not be appropriate or legitimate. But if your purpose and intent and the way you go about this is to try to meet that pain need, the pain management need, um, then you would that could be legitimate. Now, the other question is, do you have alternatives 
that would not cause these harmful side effects? And in most situations, the answer is no, you don't have better alternatives available to you um, in, these, in these circumstances. So yes, you have a proportionate reason. The good that you're achieving directly um, is essentially worth tolerating the harmful side effects uh, in those situations. And so yes, it can be legitimate under the principle of double effect um, to uh, increase the dose of a painkiller, even if you foresee it might cause other harmful side effects, um, such as hastening death. It's a great explanation. I was wondering if we could maybe go off on a little side tangent for a bit, because as you were speaking, um, what comes to mind is, well, the phenomenon of assisted suicide, which we see coming up, you know, making its way um, across our country and other countries as well. And I was wondering if you talk a little bit about intentionality and distinguishing the intentionality of a person who is increasing pain medication for the purpose of alleviating pain versus intentionality of giving an overdose of medication to cause death. You spoke about that previously, but I'm wondering if, if yeah. you could talk a little bit more about that to give our audience some clarity about the difference between, well, assisted suicide or euthanasia, if you are the one who is, you know, actually administering that lethal dose, the difference between mm -hmm. that and the principle of double effect as we're talking about here. Sure, absolutely. Great clarification. It's actually, it's, it is one of the areas of significant confusion and, and of moral angst for people of good conscience when they're not sure or clear about right. what that difference is. Um, so, so yes, yeah, so when we talk about something like euthanasia or suicide or assisted suicide, it's radically different from applying the principle of double effect um, to decline a legitimate treatment, for example, even when you foresee that death might result from that, or to legitimately decline a treatment, I'm sorry. Um, or it's also very different from the case we just discussed, where you're increasing the dosage, and yes, you foresee that death is going to result. Uh, and, and here's the difference. Euthanasia and suicide both entail uh, directly intending death. In other words, the, the killing and the, the death of that individual is the means by which the alleviation of suffering is achieved. That's actually the textbook definition, if you will, of, of euthanasia, mm -hmm. um, is a deliberate um, taking of, uh, of the person's life as a means of alleviating suffering. So that's where your third criterion of double effect would kind of come into play here. If you were trying to apply it, uh, you would come to that point where you see, wait a minute, um, is the good effect here, the alleviation of suffering, that good intention we have in both cases, uh, whether it's assisted suicide or euthanasia or whether it is the pain medication, we're intending in all these cases to alleviate suffering, alleviate pain. But with euthanasia and assisted suicide, we're accomplishing that by killing the person. That's the means. And so that would fail the third criterion of double effect um, because the relief of suffering flows from death. Whereas when we increase the dose of a painkiller, um, the good effect of, of pain relief uh, flows directly from the pain medication. And the death may follow or it may be hastened as a consequence of that dose of medication. So that's the difference of the, the intentionality. What is being directly intended um, with euthanasia-assisted suicide is death, 
as a way to relieve suffering, whereas with the pain medication situation, what's being directly intended is um, administering a pain medication to treat the pain, and then we foresee that death may result. Great explanation. Um, very well stated. One other question for you, John, and, and kind of going, coming back to the use of the principle of double effect. If a person has a, a person is in a situation where there are two or maybe more um, effects that could happen because uh, that, that could come about because of a decision that they have to make, and they go through the principle of double effect, does double effect necessarily tell them what to do? No. Uh, no, double effect is, is a tool. Um, it, it can't tell you as such what to do, um, but it is a principle that's intended to help you to understand, to reason through, and to, to figure out what the right thing is to do in the circumstances you're in and with the kind of decision you're trying to make. Um, what, it, what it can do, in some sense, is it can tell you what you should not do. <laughs> right. uh, so if you, you know if you're trying to apply it and you see that oh wait a minute you know the the bad effect is actually the means of accomplishing the good that I want. Well now you've used that tool and you've excluded um, a course of action by by seeing it didn't quite fit. Um, but if you're meeting those first three criteria that it's good in itself, it's the good effect is directly intended and not the bad, and the bad effect is not uh, the means to the good effect, then you're left with that proportionate reason. And the proportionate reason assessment is something that does require prudential judgment. Uh, in other words, you, you have to look at your circumstances, and those circumstances can vary from cases that might initially seem similar of different individuals in similar cases but uh, there are particulars that will be different. And so those, those cases, you might come to a different prudential judgment in those different cases as to whether there is a proportionate reason here that would justify uh, going ahead with the action. So no, it doesn't give us the answer, but it certainly gives us, um, it is a very important and crucial tool um, that we very often use um, in the work that we do with our ethics consultation um, to help us navigate these difficult ethical situations. Great. Any final words of wisdom you'd like to leave us with? Uh, no, I don't think so. I mean, other than I, I would just say that, you know, it's, we've kind of gone through the basics of the principle here, but I mean, this principle is has applications in really every area of not just health care ethics, but all of our moral right. life. We're, we're constantly, um, you know, running into it and applying it in different scenarios. And, um, you know, people always have lots of questions about this uh, principle, but they're also always so happy to discover it when they haven't heard of it before or they, you know, learn for the first time, you know, oh, wait a second, this, so many things make sense because it's just, you know, it's a natural part of our, our moral intuitions. You know, like I said, you think about something as simple as taking pain medication or, you know, take some ibuprofen for a headache and it's like, oh, wait, maybe we're applying double effect here. <laughs> right. Well, didn't, didn't even think about it. So I, I can remember students that I've had in class, particularly those who have been in the military, and there are great military um, applications of the principle of double effect. And it's kind of the same thing. That, so you see the light go on and they realize right. that, wow, yeah, this has this principle really does have a lot of different applications. <laughs> yep. John, thank you very much and um, have a great day. My pleasure. Thanks so much, Joe. Same to you. For more information on this topic and other bioethical issues, visit our website, 
ncbcenter.org and subscribe to our publications, Ethics and Medics, and the National Catholic Bioethics Quarterly. I'm your host, Joe Zalot. Thank you for joining us today, and we'll see you next time.